Hello, guys. Welcome to another episode of the Elsa Kurt Show. Let's get right into it. I have a great guest today. I'm really excited to introduce him to you. His name is Chris Strom, and we're going to be talking about his book, Brooklyn to Baghdad. are you today, Chris? I'm great, Elsa. How are you? I am good. Thank you so much for doing this. I know you were a double book today and you squeezed me in, so much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so here's the thing. So uh, I started reading your book uh, last night. I confess, I start. I have. I'm like. I'm. I have a to be read list, and it is so long. And the more interviews I do, the longer that list gets. So I'm about halfway through, and it is so good. It, it's so compelling and so interesting. I really didn't want to put it down last night. And uh, one of the takeaways that I have for this is going to be maybe a, a a surprising one for you. And and I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I got to tell you, your wife, she's a rock star. She's, she's really amazing. She's something else. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to have to make sure she doesn't see this interview. She's already getting a big head. (laughs) Yeah. She's uh, she pretty much embodies uh, everything that makes a great uh, law enforcement spouse. Really. I mean, she's, she's, she's like the role model for it. Anybody that is new coming into our lifestyle and they want to know, you know, what's it like, how do you live this lifestyle? And, um, you know, she can probably, she could write the book. Yeah, she's great. I mean, we're married 27 years. Uh, she is my rock. Um, and she's always been supportive of me. There's been times when, you know, like everything in life, you know, you, you don't, you have a little failure, have a little setback. And my wife has always been there. To just say, come on, push on. And uh, so I'm very blessed. I'm very lucky to have her as my partner. That's awesome. Yes, you are. You are definitely one of the lucky ones to have a great partner like that uh, standing beside you. I don't like to say behind you, but beside you. Right. Absolutely. 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 She supported me in in all kinds of endeavors. And and as you know, from the book, you'll you'll see she has uh, quite a personality uh, for for (laughs) someone from her size and stature. Yeah, she is somebody you want on your side for sure. I can I can tell that already just just from uh, your description of her and and the the things that you you said about her. I'm like, yeah, I want her on my team for sure. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So now, so before we get into the book, which I I, I really want to talk about, um, I want to talk a little bit about your your background, how you came to law enforcement, because you are a, you're now retired, of course, uh, NYPD sergeant, and you were with um, the investigation, no, what is it, the investigations division? Tell me exactly what. The the intelligence division, that's where I finished out my career uh, with the NYPD the last five and a half uh, years of my career, so um, but like most people in the, you know, in, in, in police work, you know, you don't start there. You know, you you have the, again, this might come as a shock to some some folks in your audience. In the NYPD, uh, you start out walking a foot post once you get out of the academy. Um, I don't know if that happens in many police departments. I would imagine most police departments, depending on the size and, you know, the area and things like that, um, they don't even have foot patrol. It's just mobile patrol in one form or another. Um, and then from that, you know, I did regular patrol, anti-crime, street crime. Uh, I did some narcotics and then eventually I get promoted to sergeant. 
and I move over to uh, Brooklyn. I had been in Queens for 13 years. So it was pretty <laughs> it was pretty interesting. And I was very comfortable where I was in Queens. And then once I got to Brooklyn, uh, I started doing narcotics works and then eventually made my way into the intelligence division. That's incredible. So, you know, I mean, I know I can't I cannot even imagine what it had to be like working in New York City and uh, just the nonstop uh, adrenaline rushes. It had to be just insane. I, I can't even fathom. But I know from my husband who worked, you know, inner city for most of his career and uh, the, you guys love it. You guys love it, don't you? <laughs> Yeah, you know, it, it's it, it is it is a love hate relationship. I mean, I, first of all, the camaraderie that you experience it, it could be in any police department. It doesn't have to be the NYPD. They are like your second family, and the people that I worked with, I mean, I talk to them to this day. Uh, I have pictures of them on my wall behind me. I mean, we uh, just genuinely love each other and care about each other, and we check in with each other. So that's one aspect of it. Obviously, the excitement. If you like police work. Uh, I got to live out my fantasies and my dreams in the NYPD. I mean, pick a scene from any movie. Uh, I, I, I've pretty much been involved in that in some form or fashion, maybe more than I should have been. But uh, it's it's a great career. It's different every day. Uh, I think one of the best things about New York uh, is that there are so many different people that you come in contact with. Um, so, I mean, pick a demographic, pick a group, race, religion, ethnicity. It's It's all there. And it's all little enclaves and little different, uh, you know, uh, communities within communities and boroughs of themselves. That's so cool. Um, now, did you know from a young age that that's what you wanted to do? Did you always know that policing was going to be in your, your field? I think so. I, you know, I mean, I grew up like most people watching a lot of uh, cop shows and, and movies. And, you know, I, I always had like a, an interest in it. Uh, I did serve four years in the Marine Corps, and after getting out of the Marine Corps, it just seemed like a, nat- a natural transition. I was already kind of like in that mode, a kind of a semi-military type of mode. And um, But I remember, you know, as a child going into the city and seeing cops and just thinking, wow, <laughs> that would be so cool to be a cop <laughs> in New York City. And uh, and, and thankfully, uh, I was able to, to, you know, to pass the test and actually get hired on as a cop. And now you obviously developed some some special skills to be able to interrogate people or question people. Um, that's a skill in itself that I don't think everybody, you know, not all cops are, are cut out to do exactly that because there's there's so much, there's so much nuance to that, to being able to read people um, the way that you're able to do. Was I mean, was there training for that or did that just kind of happen sort of by accident that you fell into that lane? Well, it's a combination of training. There's some basic training that you get uh, in the police department. But really, the real training is real life experience. And there's a lot of failure uh, before there's any success. And I have to be honest with you and your audience. uh, I was a good. Well, I was a very good street cop. Uh, I love living on the street. I loved you know, the action. I love the adrenaline. I loved all that uh, about it. But I was a horrible communicator. Uh, I was not a good listener. So, you know, typically I would make an arrest and, you know, I would be processing. And again, people have no idea until you're actually in that position. There's probably about 30 separate pieces of paperwork that have to be filled out for each person that you 
you would rest. And some of it has been streamlined now. It's with the advent of the computer, but initially it was all done by hand. And I'm left-handed, so it, was, it would take a long time just to process somebody. So while that's going on simultaneously, the person that you have arrested is like, hey, officer, I, I, I want to talk to you. I want to, you know, I want to give you some information. And this is the old Chris. I'd be like, listen, I'm very busy. Unless you have to use the bathroom or you're hungry or you need some water, I'm really not interested. That was really my mindset. Mm -hmm. Fast forward, I started working with some very gifted people that were great at interrogation. And I said, wow, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to take this experience of, of law enforcement to that level. And I was very blessed to be around some amazing people, gifted people, uh, people that write books, they write books about um, their technical advisors on movie sets. Um, my one really good best friend and, and dear friend and huge mentor is a friend of mine called Tommy Dades. I speak about him uh, in my book. Uh, he's definitely in the acknowledgments of the book. And uh, we're very close to this day and we share experiences. And I have to tell you, going in the box and, you know, meaning the interrogation room or being able to do the, what they call the fishbowl and look at it remotely through a video and watch my friend Tommy in action. It is an art. It really, really is an art. And he's at a way different level than I am, way, way above me, head and shoulders above me. That's so amazing. I, you know, I, all of policing, I already know, I know very well that it's none of it that I could ever do because one, I'm too short tempered. You know, I don't have the, you know, everybody has this, you know, people who are outside of our universe have this idea that, you know, cops are like short tempered and, and quick to react and all those things. And they're actually the most, you know, the good ones, of course, we're talking about, they're the most thoughtful, uh, conscientious people that you could ever meet because their actions have so much consequence. You know, they have, so, you know, and I'll speak for my husband and I probably can speak for you. Uh, you know, it, it takes a lot to get you to a point where you have to have a, you know, a, a physical reaction or anything like that, because you're so hyper aware of everything. And, you know, somebody like me, I'm just reactive. <laughs> you know, you look at me wrong. I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> I, won't, I won't. I'm not going to do that. I'm not that bad. I'm giving everybody the wrong impression of me here. I'm not that violent, but, you know, oh. I know I couldn't do that. And the interrogating, the questioning, no, I wouldn't even begin to know. I probably could not even read, you know, body language because that's a huge part of it too, right? Just reading their body language. If they're telling you, uh, you know, they don't know anything, but their gestures and their, their, you know, everything tells you otherwise. So what, what an incredible skill to have. Do you use that skill in your, in your personal life too? Are you able to, uh, <laughs> that's a great question unfortunately uh i had this conversation with somebody not too long ago um it, it's a love-hate relationship with interrogation skill because you look at people and if you're a christian or a good person you know not really supposed to judge people you know and uh unfortunately i do i cannot turn that off i can't trade that skill set that took years to hone to just give it away and again if I had to go in an interrogation room now and do an interrogation, I would be rusty because it is a perishable skill. You know, it's like anything else. It's like playing a sport in some aspects. If you haven't played whatever sport it is in a while, you know, you're a little bit rusty. The fundamentals are there. You understand how what you need to do, but you're like, wow, I'm really, I'm really not as sharp. I'm not on top of my game. And there's a lot of things, like you say, body language is, is a huge part of it. Um, you know, you do a five-minute psychological snapshot of somebody. Maybe you have, you know, paperwork that suggests who this person is or what he's been involved in in the past. But, you know, with that, if you're going in there cold 
and you don't have that awareness to who this person is, it could be daunting. It could be very, very challenging. Oh, I can only imagine. Now, uh, take me fast forward with me a little bit. Take me through uh, retirement from NYPD. What I really want to know is when you retired, in your mind, did you think that's it? I'm done with law enforcement. I'm done with policing. I'm going to take a whole different track. Or did you know or feel like there was still more for you to do within law enforcement? That's a great question, Elsa. I I will tell you that I I tried to convince myself I would never be involved in law enforcement again. Uh, I got involved in a business. I had, had moved from New York to uh, Roanoke, Virginia, and I got involved in a in, uh, home remodeling business. And that relationship with the person I was involved with didn't last very long. And I saw what was going on in, in Iraq in terms of soldiers being killed. And I was getting frustrated and yelling at my TV and saying, you know, what what is this all about? And so to answer your question, I think I was kidding myself uh, because I don't think you ever, you know, once you turn your uniform in and you hand in, hand in your gun and badge, so to speak, you know, you never really stop being a police officer. I never stopped even to this day when I'm in restaurants or airports and things like that, I'm always looking at people. So, um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think I tried to convince myself, as I said, but I, I think I knew in my heart of hearts, I wasn't done yet. Yeah, I understand that. I really do. You know, living this life as, as a spouse uh, of a police officer, I get it. And by the way, uh, your wife and I probably have in common that we've never sat facing the door ever. <laughs> <laughs> Safe guess. I'm guessing, but I feel like it's a safe guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's uh, true. Very true. Now, so now how did how did you go from, I technically know, I'm kind of cheating a little bit, I know, because I've read this part in the book, but I want you to share with the, with the audience, how did you go from Roanoke to Baghdad? Well, I, I had started applying for jobs and um, uh, I ended up getting a phone call from a recruiter and... Um, I have a conversation with him and he describes the job that because of what's going on in Iraq, they want to shift gears and do counterinsurgency, which up until that point really wasn't being done. And the idea was that I would provide guidance to some colonel at at a brigade level uh, of how to look at the insurgency from a law enforcement lens. And so he said, is that something you're interested in? And I'm like, I'm definitely interested in it. So from that, I go to... an onboarding and an orientation for a couple of weeks. And uh, I'm there with about 35 other guys and girls. And they call me and two other people out of the classroom. And uh, they said, the program manager wants to talk to you. And I'm saying, in my life, in my past experience, this is not generally a good thing. You know, you're being plucked from the class. And I'm thinking, what do you, what did I do wrong or whatever? And uh, I get in there and now it goes from, he said, you know, the, the program manager says, you know, sit down, relax. We want to pitch a different program similar to what you're doing. So I went from being just the person that would be probably static on a base in Iraq, giving advice to the colonel to, we want to know if you'd be interested in being an interrogator at the point of capture of, uh, of insurgents and going out on combat missions. And, uh, you know, I'm doing backflips in my mind of excitement. The adrenaline is just running rampant in my body. And I'm trying to ex- express a, a very calm and serious demeanor and, and and not, you know, act like a kid and say, <laughs> oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? Really? So uh, <clears throat> I said, yeah, I, I think I'd be interested in that, you know, but I was blown away 
at the at the prospect of being able to have that opportunity. That's amazing. Yeah, I can I can kind of picture it just going, yeah, sure, you know, that sounds good. <laughs> but inside you're like going crazy. <laughs> exactly. Oh, and then the whole training process that lasted longer than anticipated, right? Or the yeah, well, yeah, the training process and just the anticipation of actually going overseas like that, that took longer than expected. And so now take me through getting there. I mean, just the whole experience. Now, um, when you were in the Marines, you did not deploy, right? You didn't go overseas then. So this was a, a new experience, right? Well, I, I I had been on several carriers, but it wasn't during a wartime. So I traveled all over the world. But yeah, to your point, no, never in a war zone, never, okay. uh, you know, never, never li- living out, you know, in, in 120 degree weather day in and day out in dusty climates and desert environments now. Although, although to your credit, uh, New York City uh, is a bit of a war zone, <laughs> probably throughout. Yeah, it's certainly year. a war zone now, so, that's yeah. for certain. So, yeah, I mean, you definitely were in a war zone in some degree. <laughs> just a Absolutely. different, Just a different uh, category, I guess. Um, so the book is really fascinating in, in every way, but one of the things I see through it, uh, throughout it is that the level of frustration with the chains of command and all of that stuff. And I've heard stuff like that before. And so for you to see that firsthand, how, um, challenging that was to get around and deal with, because you were getting a lot of resistance, correct? Because you were considered civilians, Correct. Yeah, and just to give some context for your audience, Elsa, um, I was there with a team. This isn't the Chris Strom show. Uh, Chris Strom didn't solve the problems in Iraq. <laughs> I worked with a, a group of uh, very talented individuals, uh, mostly from the special forces community, uh, SEALs and and Delta and Green Beret. Um, you know, one of the geniuses of the team. In fact, my book is uh, dedicated to memory of my friend Matt Pacino. He was our intel officer, and he was hugely a big part of the uh, of the team's success in terms of identifying uh, actionable targets, but um, yeah, the, the the level of frustration again. Who knew there'd be politics in the military? I, I mean, you know, people have career aspirations in the military, um, but there is. And uh, what one of the things that was happening, uh, unfortunately, is you know, as we're rounding up these targets, and just again for your audience's benefit, uh, these are these are bomb makers. These are bombing places. These are financiers. Uh, these are people in the Iraqi government that are all part of this insurgency that's killing soldiers. They're not shoplifters at Walmart. These are bad, bad people. So as a course of rounding these people up, uh, the, the colonel who had already previously established a working relationship with some of these people in the Iraqi government is now finding out that he's part of the insurgency. So you can imagine if I'm typing up my report, which I did the interrogation and the human report, and that's being read in Washington, D.C. for the president's daily briefing. Uh, if that person, you know, and this colonel, and I'm just going to keep it with the colonel, is looking to get promoted and get his star, well, that's probably a detriment to his career path. So, again, not by design, not intentional. That was one aspect of it. The other aspect was, is that we're rounding up these targets and we're confiscating tens of thousands of dollars in brand new $100 bills in serial number order. So clearly they didn't print this money. They didn't steal this money. Somebody gave them this money. So again, this is a bad guy who's killing soldiers and the money is easily traceable. You, you can, you know, a, a first year accountant student would be able to tell you 
who gave this money. Now, do I know specifically if that was the FBI that gave it to him or the CIA or the colonel himself? No, but they know. Because when I record the serial numbers, and it goes again into my report, um, people are, are are anxious and upset about that. Wow. Wow. And there's so much, and I, and I really do, I highly recommend uh, your book because there's so much in there, so many things that I certainly would have never known uh, to just go on behind, behind the scenes, just the behind the scenes and everything that's actually happening there and in these circumstances is just mind-blowing to me. And you do such a beautiful job um, showing it and explaining it. it it's so, so good. Um, what... What was your biggest takeaway from your experience there? I mean, that might be a hard, I, there's probably so much, but um, what was your biggest takeaway from it? Well, I, you know, I mentioned before, you know, when you work in a police department, you're around amazing people and you're like a family. Well, you know, we started working with this one particular army group called 122 TSC, which stands for Tactical Strike Team. And, and the guy that ran the team was this guy named Sergeant Dave Peluso, who I'm very close with to this day. We are like brothers. And um, it got to the point where the relationship with uh, Sergeant Dave and his teammates, they wouldn't go out and action a target without us. That's how how much trust and confidence we had in each other. And again, for your audience's benefit, you know, I'm at this time, I'm 48 years old while this is happening. So I'm getting to look at it from the lens of somebody a little bit older hopefully a little bit smarter and a little bit more mature and the relationship with these young kids and seeing, and they're not kids, they're, they're men and women, but they're younger than me by many years uh, to see how they felt about themselves, about how they felt when they rounded up a bad guy that they knew killed one of their soldiers, maybe a week or so before uh, that uh, level of satisfaction and, and how, they felt about themselves and how we felt together as, as a team was the most amazing uh, experience of my life, really. Second to having my, my children, obviously, but it was amazing. And I, I, I try to explain it to people. I said, but it's almost like, you know, that expression, if you weren't there, you just can't understand. I'm telling you, it's amazing. Amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I get that. I, and my husband has said similar things that, you know, you, you build these bonds and there's relationships with people that you otherwise in another lifetime or another part of your life would have never known. So you probably, you know, so for the rest of us, uh, imagining that is almost impossible. You know, we can only imagine it in the context of like watching a movie or reading a book to actually live it and experience it and build those kind of bonds and relationships almost out of thin air, really, you know, because you have to put that level of trust in these people who are actually strangers to you and uh, who become essentially your family. So um, it's an experience that you're right, that you you can describe, you can explain, but in order to truly understand it, you, you have to live it. So, um, but as an outsider, I certainly uh, appreciate when, you know, people like you write books for, for us to be able to get a glimpse inside that experience and at least try to understand to some degree. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, and one of the things just again, to, to add some context to it, I mean, you know, everybody has seen like a movie where, you know, it's a police drama and there's an arrest made and, you know, uh, maybe after that, you know, the, the cops go out and they bend an elbow at some, you know, watering hole or something like that, you know, 
in, in Iraq, the soldiers don't have a watering hole, so to speak, but they go to the chow hall. So now we're online, you know, go, going through there, and, you know, maybe the, they want to sit with you or you, they don't want to sit with you. But the, the, uh, the communication of, of what just happened, what just transpired, what bad guy, what guy in the deck of cards that they rounded up spreads like wildfire on the base. It's not a very big base. I was on a base called Fob Falcon. So seeing that about, again, how they felt about themselves, how their peers outside of them from different units within within this uh, base are viewing them, you know, that's that's something that's very prideful, too, that you get to watch and experience. And it's, again, it, when when you go there, you know, the Army is there, you know, I don't know if it's changed, but they're generally there for at least a year. It's a one-year commitment for them, sometimes even longer. So, you know, sometimes when you get there, they do mundane things like, route clearance, which was clearly one of the biggest killers of soldiers because they're driving at five miles an hour down some road, picking up garbage, which is another issue altogether. Here, they're actually making a difference and they're, you know, they're not going to change the world. But, you know, again, for context for your audience, the area of operation that we worked in in southern Baghdad, we went 60 days without a single IED event. No, no fatalities, no, nobody getting blown up or injured, which was unheard of prior to this team taking place and this uh, and this whole dynamic and relationship with Sergeant Dave and his and his group of soldiers. Wow, that's amazing. That's incredible. Absolutely. Um, so tell me a little bit about the process of writing this book. Was this um, for you? Like, did you know when you wrote this that this was something you wanted to publish? Did it start off as something as like a catharsis to just put all the stories down? Did you have a plan for the book like right from the beginning? Well, I, I I wouldn't say I had a plan because I'm not a I'm not a journalist by trade. I mean, I've written thousands of reports <laughs> for the police department, and uh, so I'd like to think I'm I'm capable of writing. But um, I could I'm not a fiction writer. I can only write nonfiction, so I, I don't have a mind or the head for something like that. But I kind of like basically did it as a chronology, <laughs> and then as I started getting into it, I'm like, this might be an interesting story to tell later on in life. So. Uh, it was a combination. I would say initially, probably not so much on the book front, but then as I started getting over there and seeing what was going on, I'm like, yeah, I definitely want to make this into a book, which is a whole other issue. Again, I didn't know anything about the literary world. I didn't know anything about agents and publishers and editors. And again, just as a, a, a footnote to this story, um, the book was originally 322 pages uh, when, it, when, it was first, when it was first submitted. Then the lawyers got involved and the editors got involved and it whittled it down to 288 pages. So again, there's a lot of things in there that I wanted to say. And the lawyers would be like, no, nah, you probably wouldn't, it's probably not a good idea to say that because there's other things like lawyers for these people that you might be speaking about that may find that not so, you know, so uh, favorable. So um, anyone that's thinking about writing a book, um, I did it and I'm not, I'm not any genius, uh, but I will tell you, you get a lot of no's and there's a lot of things that, I learned along the, the, the process of, of writing this book and actually getting it published. And it's not self-published. My publisher is Chicago Review Press. And um, and so it's been, a, it's been an experience, to say the least. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. The whole literary world is a whole different beast. But yeah, the, the uh, pride of accomplishment 
with that is is pretty cool. And to be traditionally published is also very nice. And that makes you feel good too. But you're so right. You know, the whole process of it, the the editorial process and uh, the uh, publishing process, everything about it is definitely quite a journey. So I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you navigated it. That's pretty awesome. Cause it's a, it's a great product and I hate to call it a product. It's a, it's a great book. A product sounds so, so cold <laughs> when it's such a personal account uh, and um, just uh, so well done too. And I do laugh when you say uh, about the lawyers jumping in and saying you can't can't talk about this. Even with the names changed to protect the identities, they still, <laughs> I guess it was still clear enough that they would know who who they were if they saw it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, and you have to have thick skin. I mean, you yes. know, listen, you know, again, it, it, it's, there is a lot of pride, as you say, in, involved in it. It's a feeling of accomplishment. Uh, I'm at a, you know, I'm at an age in my life where I appreciate more, certain things that I never appreciated before. Uh, but certainly this was, again, it wasn't an overnight success and, you know, a lot of no's. And, and again, if you, if you are not determined enough to do this, uh, or if you can't take rejection, then it might not be a road that you want to go down, but I was just determined and I wasn't going to give up. And I finally got fortunate enough that, you know, somebody actually signed me, but you get a lot of no's. So if, <laughs> if, you're, <laughs> if you're sensitive, if you have uh, that, that kind of a, a personality, then it might not be something you want to take on. But Yes, yes. I say that to people when they want to get on uh, certain social media platforms and ask me about it. I say, well, <laughs> be prepared because it ain't pretty. <laughs> That's for certain. Oh, uh, Chris, tell everybody where they can find your book and find you. If you have a website, uh, social media, all that good stuff, where can we find you and your book? Yeah, well, the book is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. If you go to a local bookstore and they don't have it, you can certainly request it. Uh, I'm on social media. Um, I'm not an expert at social media. I'm more fun, unless it's it's something to do with promoting the book. Um, I try to keep out of the politics. Uh, it's Brooklyn to Baghdad uh, is my one. Uh, account. I also have Christopher Strom as another Facebook account. I'm on Instagram at Brooklyn to Baghdad. And I'm on Twitter, although I really don't uh, post much on Twitter. I comment on some things, uh, but that's I'm on there as well. And if somebody Googles my name, uh, Christopher Strom or NYPD Sergeant Christopher Strom, all kinds of information pops up in terms of interviews and podcasts and speaking availabilities and things. Outstanding. Chris, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and talking with me and uh, sharing your story. I appreciate it very, very much. Thank you so much, Elsa. I appreciate you for having me on. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. All right, guys, there you have it. That was Chris Strom. He is the author of Brooklyn to Baghdad. It is well worth the read and uh, go check it out. We'll see you guys in the next episode. Take care. Hey, family, if you're looking for the perfect gift for the reader in your life, why not check out one of my books? They're all available on Amazon and most major online book retailers, as well as Elsa